Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. Have you heard about Prescriptive Health? Prescriptive is a healthcare technology company rewriting the script for the U.S. prescription market. This is a first in pharmacy. The Prescriptive platform enables pharmacies to connect with their patients in a more equitable and transparent ecosystem, which will foster fair pricing, better access to medication, increased adherence, and most importantly, better patient engagement. The Prescriptive team believes in empowering healthcare consumers with easy-to-use tech to fundamentally change how prescriptions reach and impact the lives of people throughout our nation. Join Prescriptive Health in rewriting the script. Learn more at prescriptive.com. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Three, two, one. Adverse drug reactions, or ADRs, are a serious issue in healthcare today. The pharmacist is the last line of defense to help prevent ADRs. A rising role of the pharmacist is the specialist who focuses on our children. Pediatric pharmacy ensures safe and effective drug use and optimal medication therapy outcomes in children up to 18 years of age. Currently, there are more than 1,450 board-certified pediatric pharmacy specialists, known as BPS. If you're interested in this expanding field of pharmacy, this podcast is for you. All right, everyone, let's give it up for our host. Okay, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is the Pediatrics in Review. We are um, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and I am truly honored um, to have Stephen here today, Stephen Teach. Um, He is a physician who helped write uh, the the much-needed and long-overdue guidelines, (laughs) the 2020, I was so excited about this, National Asthma Education and Prevention Program. Um, He was part of their coordination committee and expert panel that helped give us some updated guidelines to the 2007, yes, 2007 asthma guidelines. So um, I know as a pediatric pharmacist, I was really, really excited to have this because 2007 in med- medicine timeline and terminology is a really long time. And um, I'm really just happy to have you on because I know a lot of these things that are highlighted in, in the guidelines um, are a huge change in practice for a lot of us um, providers. And so again, thank you, Stephen, for being on. Um, first and foremost, I would just love you to introduce yourself a little bit about, about, as we started talking about before I hit record, uh, what you do and uh, what your mission is. And again, thank you so much, Stephen. You bet. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Jenna. I'm really excited to do this. My name is Stephen Teach. I'm a pediatrician and a pediatric emergency medicine doctor at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. I run a, a program uh, that I, I actually founded it um, over two decades ago. Wow. Uh, it's called Impact DC for improving pediatric asthma care in the in the District of Columbia. It's a matrix program, actually, of asthma care, advocacy, research, and education, and it has a kind of a broad focus of uh, improving the care and outcomes of 
of kids largely from under-resourced urban backgrounds, many of whom are, are Black and, and Hispanic and uh, have, uh, you know, uh, limited access to effective longitudinal modern asthma care. Mm -hmm. Many of these children are highly dependent on the urban emergency department. So on, on the emergency department of our hospital, for example, for episodic care of asthma. So these are the kids that are home, you know, exposed to a lot of allergens, indoor particulates, uh, nitrogen dioxide from, you know, the gas top stove, all those irritants and allergens, you know, trigger, trigger their asthma, uh, particularly in the setting of a viral upper respiratory infection. And they head into the emergency department where we hit them hard with uh, albuterol and epitropium and mm -hmm. uh, systemic steroids, magnesium, epinephrine, if we need to. And we rapidly turn sure. these <laughs> exacerbations around. And we're really good at it. Um, you know, our admission rate in the emergency department hovers around 15 to 20 percent of all the kids that come in. Most of the kids are treated and they go home. Wow. The problem with that, Jenna, though, is obvious that that the families come to depend on that mm -hmm. uh, care source. And because of their limited access to really effective longitudinal care, they end up sort of cycling uh, from no care in the community to our intensive emergency department based care. And they don't avail themselves of the, you know, what we all know as the effective uh, ongoing uh, longitudinal care. I like to say a whiff of uh, inhaled corticosteroid uh, goes a long way to calming down the airways and keeping the kids under under control. So that's what we do. We 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 partner with these families in a matrix program of care, advocacy research, and and try to uh, bring the uh, preferential options to them. That's amazing. Thank you, Stephen. And I can say um, that was, I know we talked a little bit about perfecting peds before, but that was one of the huge drivers of why I started my business because we, just like you, I um, practiced for eight years prior in Camden, New Jersey, which as you know, is one of probably not one of the most impoverished areas, just, just right. Similar to DC, their demographics are, are very similar, um, large black and Latino. And, um, I think there was such, again, that, that lack of, um, health equity that we all talk about, but based off of their, their demographics, their poverty, their location, their income, they just, there was, these kids were frequent flyers and, and I work predominantly in the ICU. So I would get the really sick ones um, that were frequent flyers that were really scary that you had, you know, you had your ketamine, your turb, you, these ones are, were so sick that they were intubated, but they would turn around so quickly. And then you would see them again, right? Months later. And it was one of those things like these kids are going to die. Um, and so if we don't get them the appropriate access and then, you know, you want to pinpoint it on the parents, but then when you talk to them, it's like something as simple, which literally happened to my daughter, something as simple as that it's not, their meds aren't covered by the insurance company and that they didn't communicate that to anybody. And for that reason, they have been non-compliant. I mean, my own daughter's Flovin, I think is, is still sitting there because luckily she's hasn't needed it, but I think it's $400. And so just doing that simple formulary change to, to partner and match their, their insurance company, because the parents, um, nobody stressed to them the importance and the need of this inhaled corticosteroid. And then the fact that it's too pricey for them to afford, then that, that was, that's really the root cause. And so working just like you're saying with these parents to get to 
you know, is it an education thing? Is it a financial thing? Is it, how can we help you and your, and your um, child stay safe? And so thank you so much. I mean, that it was it seeing it every day in and out um, in the PICU setting, especially with those really scary kids. Um, I can totally appreciate what, what you're doing and um, two decades and that's a huge project. So thank you. Um, getting into a little bit about the actual the, the asthma updates, like I said, in 2017, as providers, uh, as a pediatric pharmacist, I live and die by, by guidelines. Um, obviously, I know each patient's different, but it just gives us a great objective starting point. Um, I just want to dive into um, the actual expert panel and working group and wanted to see who, who sat on your panel, Stephen, as you were developing these updated guidelines. Right. Yeah. You know, it was a long process. And and as you noted, it was really the first update since 2007. And when you think about that, it's a it's a really remarkably long time, given the advances we've seen over the last decade. So the uh, National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute has a has a group that's called the Expert Panel Working Group. And that's part of the National Asthma Education and Prevention Programming Coordinating Committee. So a big group of people, and they asked a, a number of us, uh, mainly academic types, so people who were um, really comfortable reviewing and grading the, the existing literature in a number of areas. Uh, they recruited from across the country, pediatricians, internists, allergists, pulmonologists. I was actually a bit of an outlier as a pediatric emergency medicine doctor. Uh, but my interest has long been on exacerbations, flare-ups of the disease, and they actually valued that. And I was privileged uh, to, to join up. It was a long process. It started with an exhaustive uh, a literature review, a generation of proposed questions. There was a public comment period where uh, the public and professionals could comment on the pr proposed questions. And ultimately, uh, there were six topic areas, only six, which the group decided to focus on, two of which are, are really sort of pharmacy heavy. Yes. Uh, the six areas are the use of intermittent inhaled corticosteroids, the use of long-acting muscarinic antagonists, uh, what to do about indoor environmental allergen exposures, uh, the role of immunotherapy, the role of the measurement of fractional excretion of nitric oxide and the role of bronchial thermoplasty, which is decidedly not used uh, in pediatrics. So ultimately they made 19 recommendations across these six areas, 18 of which are, are relevant to, uh, to children and families uh, uh, uniquely. Um, I'll mention right at the start though, Jenna, what's really kind of interesting about these is what's not included on this list, right? And what's not included is is what's really rocking the asthma world right now, which are the biologic therapies. Yes. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, story there is that when the decision was made to update these topics way back in 2014 and this whole multi-year process unfolded, wow. there was only a single biologic uh, approved for use at that time. And that, of course, is omalizumab, which has been around the longest. Yes. <laughs> uh, since then, we've had four or five more come online. But uh, these, these focused updates, the 2020 focused updates, are absolutely silent 
uh, on the role of biologics, and they've uh, received a lot of criticism for that. And that's yeah, and that's interesting to me because even yeah, omalizumab, I feel like too, even as a pharmacist, that comfort level. Once you're going to those types of therapy, I feel like you need more guidance, right? Because then you're thinking of doing, you know, all your are your IgE and IgG testing, and and you know how have they been exposed to steroids lately? Have they not? All those things are super complex, and so yeah, you appreciate guidance as it as it gets into that, but. Um, that's just really shows that that the need for these guidelines, and I had no idea that you guys started in 2014. That's it was a, a multi-year long process, and then, you know, right at the end of it, of course, COVID uh, uh, made the last uh, several months uh, the process um, last several months particularly tough. One other thing I I think we should get out right at the beginning yeah. is you know that these 18 recommendations affecting children are really broken into into two groups. Okay. One is the the strong recommendations. So those are, you know, uh, what we would most reasonable doctors would, um, you know, recommend okay. uh, for most patients as kind of the standard of care. Um, and there were actually not very many strong recommendations made. Most were conditional recommendations, and these are intended really for most people, most patients, but. The, the emphasis here is on this, this concept of shared decision-making involving the, the clinician, of course, the family, and, and, the, and of course, the child, uh, him or her, or their self. Uh, the idea being that this is going to be a discussion, like here are the options, uh, what makes sense for you? Yes. Um, as a clinician, I could go either way here. Let's get that, that input from the child and the family. Yeah, and I think that's so critical too. And that's like a, a kind of an art as you get more into your practice is like, you know, you kind of see that there's a lot of gray areas and and there's it's not everything's black and white and working with the family to see what's realistic for them um, from just a compliance standpoint, financial standpoint, and, and really to include them into the care um, really helps everybody all around, you know? Um, and so that's why I love working with these families really intimately. Um, so, and what are the, um, I want to see if you could break down, cause this is a huge, these, these updates are a huge change in practice from 2007. Um, because just focusing on the inhaled corticosteroids alone, like I know traditionally as a pharmacist, I graduated in 2012, they were saying like, if you don't take your inhaled corticosteroid every day, it's not even worth it, right? So we just like drilled into parents um, the importance of taking it twice a day. If you're not compliant, you know, 80% of the time, don't even bother doing it because it's not going to work effectively. Um, and so this intermittent inhaled corticosteroid really just was a huge practice shift. So um, I wanted to see if you could um, just break down the key points of change recommendations per age. Yeah, I'll do my best. It's, it gets <laughs> really, really nuanced. And, and you know, Jenna, I think that there's been a little bit too much made of, I think, in my opinion, of the guidelines recommendations around intermittent inhaled corticosteroids. Um, particularly what we'll come to in a minute, which is this real revolutionary idea of SMART therapy, the single maintenance and reliever therapy. It is true that the initial approach for most kids should continue to be 
daily inhaled corticosteroid in the lowest possible dose uh, that controls them. You know, and we should stress not only daily adherence, that is take the med, uh, but also proper technique, you know, and that's the huge part about these inhaled steroids. I tell my families all the time that, you know, any fool can take a teaspoon of Tylenol, right, and swallow it down. Uh, not a lot of technique involved in in that, right? No. But for a, a child and a family to properly take inhaled corticosteroids, whether by a meter dose inhaler or by a dry powdered inhaler, that's that's something that that really needs to be taught, practiced, reinforced um, over and over again. Because uh, I talk all the time about technique and adherence, technique and adherence, and I put technique first, right? Because you can be adherent to these drugs, Very true. but if you're not taking them correctly. Uh, and getting them down to the small to medium sized airways where they need to work, then you know you can be super adherent and still not really realize the benefit of, of the drug. Yeah, and I think. So, but go ahead. No, sorry. No, no. I was just saying for my own personal, like with three little girls, um, my one has has asthma and allergies, and really for me, it does not. Nebs do not work because she can't sit still for for a long enough time, and so really working. Okay, I had to actually like plea with her provider to give her albuterol HFA with the spacer instead of the NEBS. As you know, as an ED doctor, you know that the newer literature is showing it's just as effective, if not more, that HFA with the spacer versus sitting there with the NEB. Um, but she had it like it was it was for me, I'm like, it's not realistic for my kid to sit there. She's just too antsy. Um, so so I think too, like you're saying that technique, like it, it, that wasn't an option for for my child and my family. So I'll let you take the stage, but wanted to just add that little bit. Oh, and I, I'll reinforce that point so, so strongly. You know, our team feels uh, strongly that first line should be the meter dose inhaler um, over over the uh, compressor and nebulizer Agreed. Uh, nearly nearly 10 times out of out of 10 with yep. a caveat that uh the family is trained in proper proper technique the advantage of the nebulizer with the with the compressor of course is that technique is not as important you know if you if you uh, set it up properly put the child on a mask or give them uh the um the mouthpiece with the extension to use uh and they'll sit there and take the entire treatment that that works pretty well yeah uh, it takes a long time got to keep it clean there's a problem if you're traveling a problem if you don't have access to electricity of of course um so we think that the meter dose inhaler with the spacer is is a, a huge improvement but again it, it has to be taken has to be taken correctly yeah. And you have to dispel this this myth that a lot of the, the families have, and I call it the Harry Potter myth. And the Harry Potter myth is there's something magical about that mist, you know. And I point out, hey, you know, that's 99.9% saline is uh, floating around there. Um, so let's talk about getting the medicine to where it needs to be and the advantages of the meter dose inhaler and spacer. But hey, let's talk about intermittent um, ICS. Um, really, really three, three, three ways that the guidelines talk about intermittent ICS. The first is in the youngest kids, those kids zero to four years of age, those kids with uh, intermittent asthma diagnosed. And this is the group, you know, where studies have shown that daily ICS not super effective 
in preventing the flare-ups uh, uh, with these kids. So instead, what is now conditionally recommended, conditionally recommended is a short course of daily ICS, you know, seven to 10 days with the as-needed short-acting beta agonist, albuterol, uh, at the start of a viral viral infection, so a viral URI. And this, this, this recommendation applies to, to those kids who've had um, uh, three or more lifetime episodes of virally induced wheezing um, or two or more in the in the past year and who are really asymptomatic uh, in between. My daughter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're applying the guidelines. Uh, yep. guidelines at home. Yep. And families like this, actually, because it gives them something very concrete to do uh, for their kid. And they can start it really, the clever ones start it when the kid gets a viral upper respiratory infection and starts to cough a little bit. So they don't wait until the respiratory rate goes up, their retractions, the kid is wheezing, they started early. Yep, or not, they're gonna end up on oral steroids, which I know we're talking about, but- No, 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 anything well, that, but- that. that was what was happening. And I was like, no, no, no. Like after a second course, I'm like, oh no. And then these guidelines came out and just like, you know, validated my thoughts as a mom, but you know, they're not, those whopping doses of Decadron are not benign. No, they're not. Particularly when the families are getting three, four, five courses of them a year. Mm -hmm. So we need to do more. Um, the second recommendation uh, for intermittent ICS um, is pretty narrow. It applies to those um, 12 and up uh, with uh, mild persistent asthma, mild persistent asthma. And this gives uh, uh, clinicians and the families and the, and the kids um, the ability to sort of jointly decide, so it's a conditional recommendation, jointly decide whether to replace their daily ICS with as-needed uh, SABA with um, short courses of as-needed uh, ICS with SABA. So this is the idea that, you know, um, Kids who are who are reasonably well controlled on their daily ICS with as needed SABA can actually say, "Hey, let's let's just sort of uh, take it only on an as needed basis." Um, this is particularly valuable uh, in those families where daily where who really struggle with adherence, right? You know, with the daily ICS, and so this is a, a an option, and and of course. You know, these kids need to be closely monitored as they come off that daily ICS and families need to be to be re-educated. And, you know, for all these years, we've told you that daily ICS is required. Now we're going to say, OK, we're giving you permission based on, on good literature uh, to to think about using it. If, if you think it's a good idea, conditional recommendation uh, to use it uh, uh, on an intermittent basis over daily ICS. I should say, just to interject here while we're, while we're talking about daily ICS, is that um, the committee did feel strongly that uh, short-term increases in the daily ICS are, are not recommended yeah. uh, at the onset of wheezing. So this idea of doubling, tripling, or even quadrupling the daily ICS is not recommended. I've seen that, Stephen, and in, in a couple of my local providers, obviously, I've been giving them a call. But um, yeah, I, I saw that in a couple. And then that obviously took me back to like rereading your guidelines and making sure I'm like, I'm not missing anything. Am I? <laughs> 
you know, intuitively you would think maybe it would work because, you know, it, you're giving no inhaled corticosteroids, then you're giving some and it's working, but you think maybe it would work. But um, thankfully for your guys' recommendations and the expert panel to know that it, it does not is, is very, very important. Certainly the biggest change and the one that's, I think, garnered the most attention, uh, you know, in the asthma community nationwide is SMART. You know, it's all about SMART these days, single maintenance and reliever therapy. And that's treatment with, with ICS and a very specific LABA, uh, yeah. Fomoterol or Motorol, uh, for both daily and, and rescue therapy. It is strongly recommended. So this is one of the few strong recommendations of the committee. Okay. As the preferred therapy for kids uh, ages four and up four and up so we take this all the way down to the little guys who are not well controlled on lower medium dose daily ics alone so first of all this is you know this is what you do when they're not well controlled right and a um, couple of things why from odorol well it's the lab of choice because it's it's uh has two properties it um uh has a more a rapid onset of action and it can be used more than more than bid so that's kind of a, a double win where, where SMART kind of reduces exacerbations and, and reduces overall uh, corticosteroid use. So the idea here is that, you know, you're taking your, your daily ICS LABA, uh, you start having some breakthrough uh, cough, wheeze, shortness of breath, and you start using the ICS LABA um, every, every three to four hours through the, uh, through the course of the day. Um, it has a broad steroid, a sparing effect, uh, and it um, reduces the total exposure uh, to ICS over a step up and the effects on, uh, on growth rates in young children, uh, of course. Uh, it also has the added advantage of, of being only one device, so you don't need to you know, be juggling two inhalers, one with the daily ICS LABA and one with the uh, short-acting beta agonist. Um, challenge, the sort of elephant in the room with this is insurance coverage, huh. right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So the insurers love to give, uh, only exactly what you what you need, yep. right? And the traditional way that ICS lab has been prescribed as, is as a 30 or 90 day supply so that you can get your, uh, you know, your, your, uh, Q day or BID inhalations. This kind of turns that on the head, though, and said, you know, is asking insurers to provide for additional uh, meter dose inhalers or, or dry powdered inhalers containing uh, ICS and fomoterol um, so that it can be used uh, for quick relief or for uh, as a reliever as well. And, and uh, so that's an insurance challenge. Yep, they got to love them. Um, prior off, peer to peer, the whole nine. Now with this, like I remember, I remember it clear as day. Um, when I was rounding, I was in a, I was in a uh, resident and the pediatrician talking about like how, you know, only a pulmonologist should be prescribing a LABA and LABAs have, you know, the, the, the sudden cardiac death as one of their, um, you know, it could cause sudden cardiac death. And, and she scared 
the, the crap out of me for lack of a better words when it came to lavas. So I would love your input of what side effects you're seeing. If you're seeing any, obviously they wouldn't put these guidelines there loosely. Um, and just, you know, what would you say to a pediatrician to get them a little bit, because we have pediatric pharmacists, but pediatricians too listening. What what would you say to just increase their comfort level of prescribing these medications without a pulmonologist, which sometimes is needed? Yeah, I would green light uh, the use uh, according to the step guidelines, uh, of course, uh, with a caveat that uh, the lava never be used alone but only in conjunction with the inhaled corticosteroid where it's uh, uh, universally considered to be safe. Okay, cool. Yeah, that was, I remember, so green to me and definitely scared. I know our residents, this is not something that they were comfortable with traditionally. Once once that the lava was talked about, that was when, you know, nothing was done until they saw the pulmonologist. Um, as far as Stephen, the... Um, just categorizing asthma, I know you've alluded to, you know, mild, moderate, severe. Did, did the guidelines change at all and how we categorize them? Okay, I didn't think so. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't. We still have those same definitions. Okay. They, uh, they pulled through from the 2007 updates. Awesome. Okay, I think that's really important for them to know. And then... Um, in these updates, was there... I know we talked about smart therapy, but was there... a, a was there a changing role in Montelukast or was that the same? How do you how do you feel like, and this is even me as a pediatric pharmacist, when when do you feel like that addition is appropriate and what did the expert panel think? The expert panel is uh, silent uh, in the 2020 updates on Montelukast. It was not addressed. Um, practically, um, I use it uh, uh, sometimes in lieu of a step up in kids who are having a little bit of breakthrough symptoms, but not much, okay. and who and in whom concomitant allergic rhinitis is prominent, uh, because it, of course, is labeled for that as well. So I tell the families, this is kind of a, a twofer. You, we're going to hope it's going to do a little bit for your asthma and a little bit for your, your allergic rhinitis okay. um, and use it that way. And I think too, I mean, my own daughter, obviously Flonase is a great choice too for allergic rhinitis and that awful like post-nasal drip that a lot of kids get that cause them to have these coughs. Um, but for me, you know what, Stephen, in practice, I've seen more and more um, neuropsych changes with Montelukast that kind of scare me away from it. Um, and I don't know, I mean, we know that it's it's a it's definitely a possible side effect, but just recently, it's just weird. I had two kids in the past year that have experienced that. So just an adverse effect, not to not use a drug, but just be cognizant that when you do add it on, that that could be a possible effect. And we will talk to families about that and ask them to keep a close eye on. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, okay. So then what is, um, you know, now it's placed in therapy. This is new to me from um, just in general, my, my practice. What is the place in therapy for a long-acting muscularinic antagonist? Um, and how can we incorporate those into our practice in a stepwise function manner, I should say? <laughs> yeah, pretty narrow, pretty narrow for kids. Um, the add-on LAMA therapy, these, these recommendations um, from the panel, um, only apply to, to kids 12 and up, 
So I, I believe LAMA therapy is approved on age six, but but that was not considered uh, that age group, the six to eleven year old age group, not considered uh, as part of the the systematic review and and not part of the recommendations. Um, so what did the committee conclude? Well, they concluded that daily ICS LAMA is an alternative therapy, alternative therapy after SMART. Um, and after uh, daily ICS LABA for moderate persistent disease only. Okay. For severe persistent disease, the preferred therapy is uh, for those kids not controlled on, on ICS LABA is actually triple therapy, triple therapy, a little hard to, to execute because there's not a combined device, uh, but it's a high dose ICS LABA plus add-on LAMA and as needed, short-acting beta agonists. So now you're dealing with three different devices, uh, obviously a bit tricky. Yeah, and you think of sometimes these kids need, you know, at least two devices because, you know, taking them for, you want your your R, the RN at school to have them. And, and so I feel like sometimes too, um, thinking from a practical standpoint, like you're saying, insurance coverage is, and just compliance is, is gonna be tricky there. Um, when do you, when would, or when does the expert panel feel that an escalation to immunotherapy is warranted? Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, um, the committee wasn't very enthusiastic uh, about uh, immunotherapy and really recommended fairly narrow uh, uh, guidelines. First, a um, couple of caveats. Uh, it was felt that uh, a slit sublingual immunotherapy uh, doesn't um, have a role uh, right now in asthma therapy. Maybe helpful in allergic rhinitis, but but certainly not in, in asthma therapy yet. So the focus was on skit or subcutaneous immunotherapy. Um, and a number of caveats there should not be used in severe disease. So really only in mild to moderate uh, disease and only in those ages five and up with, uh, again, mild persistent, moderate persistent disease who desire a, uh, a drop in their um, uh, exposure to, to inhaled corticosteroids. So in some pretty narrow uh, recommendations. Okay, perfect. Um, when or how, I guess for me too, even with my own daughter, definitely has the allergic viral heavily horrible allergies but also that when that she gets that virus it's when her asthma kicks in but how i mean even for me as a pharmacist i don't feel like i'm well versed in how do you minimize the indoor allergen reduction and what kind of counseling points do you give your patients oh this is so hugely frustrating um because the literature around uh, allergen reduction or the efficacy of allergen reduction is is not very not very optimistic it, it in and the panel's recommendations are um are not particularly uh encouraging they conditionally recommend against efforts uh for allergen mitigation in the home as part of routine uh, asthma care um, and when attempted, they should only be done for those individuals who are exposed to a specific allergen, like the dust mite or cockroach allergen or mouse allergen, and who are sensitized and become symptomatic 
after exposure. And if you're going to try to do this, um, really multi-component tailored intervention strategies um, should should be used. So, for example, if you're going after, um, you know, mouse, uh, uh, for example, mouse allergen, you'd want to use a, a multi-component approach where you uh, try to uh, limit entry of the mouse uh, into the home, uh, you know, control all food and food products so there's nothing for the child to eat. Uh, don't have the child eat in the bedroom where where uh, she, he, or they sleep, um, and really go after it with a with a big multiple uh, component intervention. But be aware that the demonstrated efficacy of this stuff is 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 poor at best. So not very encouraging, I'm afraid. No, and I can tell you, embarrassingly, we had some mice that, and they travel in hordes. They are disgusting. Like, <laughs> we did everything. Um, they just love to come through our basement somehow. So that, so that's that is, and it's hard because there's like their their little families. Um, now, new to to um, the the guidelines too was how we use the FENO um, and how that plays a role now in uh, the recommendations. I would love uh, for your your viewpoint on that as well. Yeah, the good news is it's it's safe, it's non-invasive, it's it's uh, pretty easy to do. Uh, biggest drawback is that you have to buy a, a piece of equipment to to do the measurements. Okay. Uh, in the home. What you're measuring is exhaled nitric oxide, and it's an indirect measure of, of what we call type 2 or eosinophilic airway inflammation. So uh, fraction, FPNO, as we call it, is high in those kids who've got a lot of, of allergic airway, airway inflammation. Um, can be tricky because use of ICS, cigarette smoking, allergic rhinitis can all affect the measurements uh, independent of uh, asthma control. So with that caveat, the, the committee uh, was pretty narrow, actually, Jenna, in its, in its recommendations. Uh, they felt strongly that it should not be used alone to diagnose or, or manage asthma. Uh, they could support a diagnosis in, in older kids, five and up, in whom the diagnosis sort of remains uh, unclear after uh, a complete history, physical, spirometry, and all that. Um, and in a subgroup of kids with well-established diagnosis, that serial uh, phenol measurements, perhaps every two to three months as part of ongoing longitudinal care, could supplement you know, the history, clinical assessments, spirometry, and ongoing care. Um, but all in all, there was real limited enthusiasm for the use of pheno in clinical care. It certainly is not emerging as the, the biomarker which will solve all of our problems. Yeah, interestingly enough, I had a, a company that, that that does this, sells the device, actually approached me to see if I wanted to help market it. And I'm like, not really, not if it's, <laughs> not, not, if it's not like, you know, supported by the guidelines and we don't think it's going to make this massive change in the diagnosis and management. But um, it's definitely, I think too, like we're used to using the traditional, like measuring the FEV and what I think you can get down to like eight accurately to measuring it. Um, but this, I mean, my eyes perked a little bit that you, they can 
go all the way down to five. Is that correct? Uh, with the pheno? Yeah. 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 It's so, it's so easy to do. We're doing it on younger kids than, than that. And, and, you know, spirometry in good hands can be done down um, really quite young. And there's actually protocols for, for infants spirometry. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those are fun, fun to watch. And then the last thing that was talked about in the guidelines that I just, to me, I had never heard about, um, I'm, Maybe, probably some of our listeners haven't, uh, was the bronchi- bronchial thermoplasty. Can you just explain that a little bit and what its clinical utility is, if anything? Yeah, limited use in adults, and I frankly don't know much about it, Jenna, but this is just what it sounds like. Uh, this is done in the operating room, and using heat, uh, the um, Airways of the lungs um, are heated and um, dilated, um, and this provides clinical uh, benefit to a subgroup of uh, adult uh, adults with asthma that is poorly controlled after um, every possible other approach is uh, undertaken. It has no role in pediatric asthma. Interesting. Okay. Um- I think that highlights most of the changes, um, Stephen. As we as we um, end, is there any other things you feel like, as a either a pharmacist or even an an RN or or a pediatrician, that we should know regarding this update? Well, again, it's what's not in it that's probably most exciting, and that's what's uh, you know evolving and and emerging right now. And you know that includes the personalized management of phenotypic uh, specific types of asthma. You know, asthma, Jen, as we know, it's it's not one disease. It's lots of different diseases that manifest as obstruction of the small to medium-sized airways. And so tailored use of biologics is going to be more and more the the future. And then the really holy grail, and I'm working on an exciting project uh, right now, two of them, in fact, uh, is on primary prevention of asthma. So this is uh, identification very early in life of of, uh, children, infants. Uh, even fetuses uh, that are going to be at high risk for the development of asthma based on their uh, genetics, based on their early life exposures. Um, And these are kids in whom we feel we may be able to prevent asthma um, altogether. And that's using uh, passive and active uh, immunotherapies and actually redirecting uh, the the development of the immune system into a more um, natural uh, uh, anti-infectious direction, a a type 1 direction as opposed to a type 2 or allergic direction. So a lot coming on that, and that's that's the exciting new stuff. That is so exciting because I know, like, personally with my three daughters, like, I know my genes kind of set them up to be screwed as far as it comes for allergies and asthma because... (laughs) Stephen, I have like eczema, I have um, allergies, I have celiacs, I have no IgA. So like, I'm like, I'm really just setting these kids up. So that would have been awesome. I mean, even for myself and my, and my own girls too. Um, yeah, it's really exciting. And even as a pharmacist, I mean, I always wonder too, as this emerging role of pharmacogenomics, um, it becomes more and more popular. I mean, I use it in all my medically complex kids and it really helps guide therapy a lot. And so I wonder, you know, if you weave that into just a lot of exciting things in the horizon. Um, 
I want to just genuinely thank you for your time. I so appreciate it. I feel like I'm talking to a superstar because <laughs> as a pediatric pharmacist, I'm like, oh my God, I get to talk to one of the, the authors and expert panel of these guidelines. So um, I do use them as a, as a, as a Bible. So again, thank you so much. And um, I genuinely appreciate your time. Oh, I, I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.